Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, so tonight we are going to be continuing our study of some of the most uh, taken out of context verses in Scripture. And thankfully... Pastor Matt gave me three of probably one of the most hardest ones in Scripture, so he gave me quite a task for tonight. Um, And I should remind you that uh, what we kind of touched on the last time we met is that the goal of this is to teach the correct meaning of these specific verses, but also to teach you all how to interpret Scripture on your own. Because it is, the, it is our ministry to equip the saints to do, to do ministry. And so that's one thing that we want you all to be able to do, to be able to learn and to interpret Scriptures on your own. To not have to rely on, on somebody with a degree. Because you don't need a degree to understand Scripture. The Lord is great, great, gracious enough to reveal His Word to those who seek Him. So that is a goal of ours, to uh, equip you and to hopefully teach you to be able to inter- interpret on, on your own. And one of the most important rules as we interpret Scripture is context, which is the, the main thing of this, out of context. So the key of proper biblical interpretation is context. So that is going to be a big part of what we do throughout this. Whenever we look at a verse, we're not just going to look at the verse, but we're going to look at the verses around that that verse. So for example, you don't just open up. uh, Well, so this is an example I got from uh, my my literature professor. And we were, at the time, uh, going over the play of ha- ha- Hamlet, which is one of the most complex plays ever ever written. And he said that you don't just open up to a line and just read one line in this play and then just assume you know what the whole, whole play is about, right? That, 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 that doesn't make sense. You have to read the whole play. But we do this with Scripture all the time, don't we? We go to this one verse and we read this one verse, and then we assume we know what it means. No, we have to get the context. We have to read the entirety of Scripture. Not only that verse, but the paragraph, and not only the, the paragraph, but the chapter. Not only that, but the whole book. We need context. So, tonight we're going to be start, start, starting in Jeremiah chapter 29. So if you have your uh, Bibles with you, turn with me to, to the book of Jeremiah chapter 29. 
And we're going to be looking specifically at verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. I will read that for us real quick, and we will dig in. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. All right, so the first thing that we want to do whenever we look at a book, we're going to look at who wrote the book, right? So, I mean, this one is pretty clear. So the, the author of this book is Jeremiah, which is a kind of a shock, right? So he was a priest and a prophet from a, from a, small, a small village just outside of Jeru, Jeru, Jerusalem. And verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of Jeremiah speak, speak, speaks to this. Uh, one other uh, important fact, too, is that he was also assisted in ministry by a scribe named Baruch. And so what Baruch did is he co- copied down a lot of what either Jeremiah said to him or he, or he took what Jeremiah already wrote and he, co- he, co- he copied it down and he compo- compiled it into what we have here. And we see this. In uh, chapters 36, verses 4 and 32, and also in uh, chapters 45, verse 1, about Baruch. So now let's look at what the, uh, the audience is for, 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 for this book and also for this specific, uh, this spe- uh, specific ver- 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 verse here. So we had a more of a broad, a broad, a broad audience, and we have a more narrow one, right? So the more broad audience is to 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 Israel as a whole. So whenever Jeremiah is doing his ministry and he's writing these things down, he is writing to. Israel specifically. But then we also see a more specific audience that he says in, uh, in chapter 29, verses 1. And I will read that to show us what the more nar- narrow audience is. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. Look there with me. He says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So we see that the, the audience for chapter 29 is to all the people taken into exile, right? So we're going to get more into that as we go go, 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 go on. And so now let's look at what the genre of this book is. And the genre of this is prophetic lit, lit, literature, which means that God is speaking 
through, through, through a man, right? He is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. So these are the words of God, of God that we have here. Now let's go into the set, setting of this text, which is kind of is going to help us to understand what this verse, what this verse me, me, means here. So if you look at the book as a whole, chapters 1 through 24, Jeremiah is prophesying the coming destruction of of um, of Israel and of Jerusalem in specific. So he's prophesying that they will be destroyed because God has made a covenant with them and they broke that covenant in their sin. They were they were worshiping other gods. The rulers of Israel were doing very unjust things. And they even, one of the things that they did was they were practicing child sacrifice as well. So very bad stuff. They were deep in sin. And so as they were in their sin, Jeremiah comes and he is saying you need to repent or the Lord will destroy you. So that is what's going on in uh, chapters 1 through 24. And then you see in chapters 25 a shift where where Jeremiah warns of the invasion of Babylon specifically and that they will be held captive for 70 years. So he's telling them all this, saying you need to repent. If you repent, this won't happen, but if you don't, you will be destroyed. And that you will be held, uh, you will be held by the, ba- the Babylonians for 70 year- years. And of course, they didn't li- listen to him at all. And then we get to chapter 29, where the, inva- the inva- invasion and destru- destru- destruction is done, and that uh, the Babylonians had already taken uh, taken the Israelites cap- 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 uh, captive. And so that's why you see in 29 verse 1, he says that he is writing to the exiles, Right? So now we know who he is writing this to and where they're at. Okay? So now let's look at what the themes of this, uh, of this, uh, this b- 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 book is. So in chapters 1 through 29, if you read through all of that, you see that there's a heavy theme of judgment. Ju- 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 Judgments, right? We see that a lot. And then in chapters 30 through 33, there is a message of restoration in the future messianic kingdom. So the verse here, chapter 29, verse 11, lies in between this. It lies between this uh, where uh, Jeremiah is concluding his 
message of judgment, and he's about to start his message of restoration. So that's going to help us, too, as we understand that this this, uh, verse here. So now let's go into how we interpret this. So we know that Jeremiah is speaking to the exiles in context of their captivity, right? So now let's look at this verse. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So a lot of a lot of ways that this verse is taken out of context is you see people say that God has a beautiful plan for your, 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 your life. I can guarantee you everybody in here has heard that at least once, right? And they get that from this verse. God has a beautiful plan for your life. Well, that's not an accurate interpretation of this, this text. This text has a lot more in here. And so we're going to learn that that is not really the proper interpretation of the, this text. So as we inter- interpret, rem- remember what the theme is here. It's a theme of judgment, right? And so this part of the verse isn't a consola- consolation saying that, oh, God knows the, pl- the plans for your life. That, that's great. It's a, that, that should bring you peace, right? Well, that's not what the author is intending here. It is a judgment. That is the theme here. So it is a judgment, right? So God promised that their captivity would only be for 70 years, right? So there there will be an end. Yet, what the people of God were doing is they they didn't think that there would be an end. They thought that God was going to, or that he wasn't going to do anything. They were, they were, well, uh, they were, doubting him so they didn't see an end in sight even though they were told that there will be an end you have a future and a hope which is what we're going to get get more into so the lord is saying i know the plans that i have for you i am sovereign i know the plans i have for you and no one will get in my way of those, those plans those plans will come to fruition so it is a, ju- a judgment on their unbelief. So after this, after what we see here, we see this, their, this ju- judgment for their unbelief. Now we see a consolation here. We see that when he says, I have plans for welfare. Or if you look at the, if you have uh, your foot, footnotes there, it also means peace. He has plans for peace. And that's one thing that we should note too, that a lot of uh, prosper, prosperity, uh, prosperity gospel pre- preachers, they will use this verse and, and say that, look, God intends for you to have a lot of a lot of 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 of, of mu, 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 money, right? But if you look at the word here, he's not he's not talking about wealth. He's talking about peace. That word shalom. That's what the, the word is in, in Hebrew, which is what almost everybody knows what that word means. Shalom is is peace. 
So he's not talking about money, he's talking about peace. Because this is in, re- in reference to the end of that 70 years. That peace that's going to come from deliverance, right? So it's not, it's, right now it's not talking about wealth. It's talking about Israel's deliverance from captivity. Then he says, which I think is a really, probably the most interesting part of this text, is he also says that I know the plans that I, I, I have for you, plans for w- 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 welfare and not, a, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, to give you a future. And so I think there are two me- me- meanings here. I think there is an explicit one, so one that's, that's evident, and there's also an, impl- an, Im- an implicit meaning here. And so the explicit meaning is Israel's deliverance in 70, in set, in set, in 70 year, year, years, is that there is a future for you you will be brought back to your, your own land. You won't stay here in captivity for long. So there's a future there and a future of peace, right? And so I also think that there is an implicit me- meaning here as well. And it's a future and a hope in the messianic kingdom where King Jesus will deliver you from your sin and shame. So there is a deli- deliverance from, from your, ca- your captives here on earth, but there is an even bigger de- deli- 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 deliverance that we receive from our sin. And of course, they didn't know where that would c- come from at the, at the time. But they knew that someone would come and that they would be delivered from their sin. And we know that that person is God. God, the Son of God would come. He would die on the cross for our sins. And he would deliver us from sin and shame. So how do we apply this to us? So I think this applies to us by saying that we need to remember God's faithfulness, that he has delivered us from our sin, and that he is sovereign. He knows the plans for your life. He is the one in control. He has everything under control. We also need to surrender to him because we can learn from, uh, we can learn from the it, the. Israelites at the time that it was because of their sin and their not wanting to repent, their unrepentance that they were in the situation that they were in. They didn't want to repent. They didn't surrender to the, the, the God of everything. So for us, we, we should look at that as an, as an example that we must repent. We must fall follow him. We must not follow into the same kind of sins that, 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 they, that they were in, but we must repent. And also, I think this 
applies to us as well. It, it tells us that we should take hope in the deliverance we have in Jesus. That we have been delivered from our, the, the one who, who had control over our heart, over sin. We have been del- del- delivered from that. And we should take hope in that. Alrighty, I have to move quickly because I have two other verses to do. So turn with me now. We're going to look at our next verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to look at verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. I will read that for us. No temptation has overtaken you, and that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, excuse me, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. All right, so let's start from the top. The, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the author here is obviously Paul. Uh, that's, that's extremely clear. Um, we see that in uh, chapter 1, ver- 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 verse 1. Um, the, the, uh, the, uh, the audience of this is the Corinthian church, hence 1 Corinthians. Um, and the, gen- the genre of this text, it is, it is a apostolic le- le- letter or an epistle. And the set, set, setting of this is, is pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. So he's writing to the church in, in Corinth. And Corinth was a major trade port at the time and known for being morally corrupt. Even, even, in set, even, to, even to non-Christians, Christians, like they were like bad, bad. I'm trying to think of, um, I think of like kind of like a modern day LA, like even people who aren't Christians are like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff going on over there. So that's kind of the same idea as they were very, very morally corrupt, corrupt. And so a lot of sins that were going on there were being done by people in the church, being done by church members. There was a lot of division in the church. There was a lot of corruption in this church. And there was a lot of false teaching in this church. And so what Paul is doing is whenever Paul wrote to this church, he writes to correct them of all of these things. He says, you guys are doing all of these really, really bad things. You need to stop it. You need to repent. And this is what you should do. So he's, he writes to correct them. So which leads us into one of the biggest themes of this is that a, corre- a theme of corrective be- behavior from sin. That is one of the biggest themes here. And, and also there's a theme of unity in the gospel. So we see that a lot here. 
So that is going to affect how we inter- interpret this. So let's get into the interpretation of this text because there's a lot to uh, unpack. So I'm going to read, read again. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to, to, to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I'm sure you've heard this uh, verse t- taken out of c- 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 context too. And I'm sure you've heard, um, you've heard p- p- people say, God will not give you more than you can handle, right? You've, and, you, and a lot of us might assume that that's a verse in Scripture, but it's not. But it derives from here. God will not give you more than you can, you can handle, right? We've heard that before, but it's not in Scripture. So you might see that and be like, well, that kind of sounds like what it says, but let's, let's, let's unpack that even more. Excuse me, even more. Because this verse does not point to our own strength. It's not talking about us, but it points us to God's faithfulness. That is the heart of what this verse is. Not our own strength, but God's faithfulness. So I think verses 5 through 12... I think those verses give us the context for verse 13. And before we read that, I want us to know that the word temptation is the same word as test. In the Greek, it's the same word. So when you see temptation and test, know that those are the the same thing. It's referring to the same thing. So let's read verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the the wilderness. Okay, so let's stop there real quick. So this is referring to the the Israelite people who were who were told by God that they had to stay in the wilderness for 40, 40 years. So it's referring to, to them here, right? So, let, okay, let, let, let's go on. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So let's, let's stop there in verse 8. That key of sexual immorality. So that is one temptation that I think is being re- referenced here in verse 13. So that's one. We're going to see two, two more. Let, let's look at verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. So, that's number two. We are not to put Christ to the test. So that is the second thing that I think that when it says no temptation in verse 13, that it is referring to. 
All right, and now let's look at one more in verse 10. It says, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So our third thing, our third temptation for us is that we're not to grumble. I think that's the third thing that's being referenced here in verse 13. So sexual immorality, not putting Christ to the, to the test, and that we are not to grumble. So this is what verse 13 is in context to. So what do these three things mean? So we have sexual immorality, which I think that means that it is, it's anything that draw, draws you away. Right? It's um, anything that can lure you away from, from God, because that's what sexual immorality does, is it lures you away from God. So I think it's referring to anything that lures you away from, from God. And then when it says to not uh, put Christ to the test, so te- uh, testing God, what, what does that mean? Um, because we see what that is referring to is when Israel put, Christ, or put God to, to, the, the, to the, the, the test, they were doing that because if you go back to Exodus you see that they put Christ to the, the test, or God, God to the test, because they, were, they wanted food and wa- 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 water, and they doubted that God could provide for them. So they put God to the test by doubting him, that he would provide for them. So I think that is... That is what this other, uh, this aspect of temptation here means. So anything that makes you doubt him, anything that makes you doubt him. And then also, when it, said that, that when it says that we are not to grumble, we look back to, to Exodus, and we see that, that, it, that Israel grumbled because they were mad at God. They were mad at him because they felt like he, they brought them out into the, wit, the wit, 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 wilderness to, 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 to die. So they were, they were angry at God. So another part of t- 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 temptation here is anything that makes you angry toward God. 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 <clears throat> so the, the, these things here, these, these tests, these temptations, like it says, let's go back to verse 13. So these things, these tests, these temp- temp- temptations that you have, have not overtaken you. They have not overtaken you. And it also says that it will not be beyond your ability. So I think we should f- focus here because this is where things tend to get weird and people kind of tend to take things in a wrong light when it says that that we will not be tempted beyond our ability and what a lot of people mean by this is on our own right so is that what it means does it mean that on our own we will be able to uh we will be able to overtake any temptation that comes our way well no this verse means that God is the one who gives you the strength to endure all of these things. That it is not in and of yourself, 
but it is God. Because what does it say? It says, God is faithful. God is faithful. And it says that he provides the escape. He will provide you the escape. Does it say that you provide your own escape? Do you sum up the escape in and of yourself? No. It says that God provides the escape. And there's a lot more that we can unpack, but we simply do not have time. (laughs) There's a lot here, and it's really good. But God is the one that provides the escape through His grace by His Spirit. He provides you the escape by giving you the Holy Spirit and dwelt in you so that, what does it say at the end? That you may be able to endure it. And we should also note here that it doesn't say that in him that, we, that our temptations and tests would just go away. That they would just disappear, right? We don't, we don't, you don't see that anywhere. Because it says that you will be able to endure it. Meaning that it's still there. But by God's grace, he gives you the strength to endure it by his spirit being indwelt in you. Because without his spirit, you would succumb to sin. You would not be able to endure. So this text doesn't point us to ourselves and, oh, look how great I am. I am able to overcome this or this. But no, it points us to God. That it is God who gives us the strength. He gives us the ability to escape through his spirit. And there are going to be things that are hard that you don't know how you are going to be able to endure it. But God gives you that strength. And he enables you to endure it through his spirit. So how can we apply this to us? So when temptations come, and they will, because this is, this is saying that when they come, right? When they come, don't rely on your own strength. Don't rely on your own strength because it will fail. But cling to God. Cling to Him because He is faithful to strengthen you. Like it says here, God is faithful. God is faithful to provide the way of escape. He is faithful to strengthen you and to protect you. So rely on him. Do not rely on yourself. Do not not think that you have it in and of yourself. You don't. But run to him. Cling to him. All right, let's move on to our next verse, which is one of my favorite ones. Uh, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be looking specifically at verse 20. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Matthew 18, 20. And I'm looking at Matthew 20, 18. I'm in the wrong place. Matthew 18, 20, which says, For where two or three are Gathered in my name, there I am among you. I don't know about you, but I have seen this painted on, on, on 
church walls everywhere. Back home, I think it was my, my great-grandma went to a Pentecostal church, and when she died, we had the, fun- the, fun- the funeral there at, at her church. And so as soon as, soon as we wa- walked in the door, I saw right up there on, on the wall, the first thing you see is for where two or three are, 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 are g- g- gathered in my name, there I am among you. And I just put my hand on my head like, oh, they just completely don't know what that means. So we're going to get to the root of that tonight. Well, we're going to try, try to. There's a lot here. So let's start at the top. The, the, the author of this is Matthew. Shocker again. So the, 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 the audience here is unbelieving Jews. Unbelieving Jews. And the genre of this is a gospel narrative. It's one of the gospels. And the setting here is Jesus is teaching to the disciples with with a theme of the child likeness of believers. So the, set, the setting again is Jesus is teaching the disciples with a theme of child, or a theme of the child likeness of believers. So that's kind of the surrounding text. And one of the biggest themes of, the, uh, of, Ma- of Ma- 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 Matthew as a whole is Jesus as Messiah. Jesus as Messiah, and Jesus as the King of the Jews. Jesus as King of the Jews. Because he was, since he was writing to unbelieving Jews, he spends a lot of time pointing back to the Old, the Old, Old Testament, saying, look, this is, this is the guy. This is the guy we've, we've, been wait, wait, we've been waiting for for thousands of years. This is him. He is the king. So now let's get into the the interpretation of this text, and I'll try to be quick with this. Um, So before we interpret this verse, like we've done with everything else, we must get context from verses 15 through 17 here. So let's... Let's read that, verses 15 through 17. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with, with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three wit- witnesses. That's key right there. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So that text right there tells us that this is about ch- the church's authority in church discipline. Church discipline, that is the context here. Church d- 
discipline and the church's authority. So verse 20, when it, uh, when it says that where two or three are, are, are g- 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 gathered in my name, there I am among you, this doesn't mean or it doesn't tell us what constitutes a church where we can say, oh, well, I, I, don't, I don't need to go to, go to church. I can just have two, two, two or three, and where, where, wherever we are, that, that's great. That's not what that means here, because I've seen this a lot. So I'm from, I'm from Flo, 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 Florida, and we like to fish a lot. And a lot of guys who don't go to church use this verse more than anything else. Because they think that they can take them and a friend out on a boat in a lake and be like, well, my, my, my church is out on the boat. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're going to be disappointed here. <laughs> because that is not at all, which, I mean, that would be great because I love to fish. But that's not what, we, we, that's not what the, the text means here, Right? does not mean that we can just go wherever with a friend and be like, oh, there we go, that's church. No, that's not what it means. With that, and also, on on top of that, with that interpretation, that would also mean that you wouldn't be able to pray on your own because God is not there because it's just you. So if you interpret it like that, that means that you can't pray on your own. Because if it's just you, then God can't hear what you say because you're not with, with anybody else. It's just one, one guy. So you'd have to get up and go across, across the street and, 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 uh, and, and, get, and get your, your friend or you know, whoever, you, whoever you, 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 you live next to to, to to come over and pray. So, so then, so then you, you, can, you can pray. So then you can have two there. So with that interpretation, it doesn't make sense. Because, of course, we're... We're called to pray, right? To pray on our own. So with that inter- inter- interpretation, it just doesn't make sense. So we have to look at the context. And the context here is church discipline and church authority. And it's because the church has authority that we are able to do church discipline. This first means that when we do church, or, or it means that when discipline is done biblically, the Lord approves of it and He guides it. He is over it. So when it, because of course, because we should also say that's why I, I added that in there, the bit, the biblically part, because of course. We've seen it done wrong, where people, where people uh, do church, church d- 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 discipline out of hate, hate and not out of, out, of, out of love and for restoration. That is wrong. The Lord does not approve of that at all. But when it is done as it is prescribed here, as we are instructed, it says that the Lord is over that, and that's why it has authority because it's done according to the way that Jesus himself said. 
So God does not approve when it is done incorrectly. No, we must follow his instructions. We must follow his instructions. I want to spend a little bit more time on application here because I think this verse is really important for us in the, in, in, in the church today. So how we apply this, I think, for one, we have to understand and see that church discipline is a biblical practice that is evident in healthy churches. Let me say that one more time. Church discipline is a biblical practice that is evident in healthy churches. Because King Jesus himself commands you to keep your brothers and sisters accountable. This is not something that we in the church just come up with because we, we want to kick a guy, uh, some guy out of the church. No. King Jesus commands you to keep your brothers and sisters accountable. That's what the church is for. That is a command. So we can apply this too by it being a reminder of us to follow Jesus to follow him and to follow his instructions closely. That we are to keep our brothers and sisters accountable. That's what the church is about. This, uh, the, the church isn't just a place that we just, we come to one place and we do a thing and then we, we, we go home. No, it is a family. Because we are a part of the family of God. And we love one uh, another enough that we don't want... We don't want people to fall into sin. That we love them enough to say, hey, you need to repent of that. Because if you don't, going back to uh, what happened to, uh, to, 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 to Israel in Jeremiah, they didn't repent and look what happened. They were destroyed. So, for us today to truly love one another, we need to call out sin. We need to call out sin and do it in, in, in love, not out of hate, but out of love because we want people to be restored. So we need to follow his instructions. Closely. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. FBCDUMAS at Hotmail.com. And also reach us by phone at 806 935 5604. We'll see you next time. So we must follow Jesus and do what he do what he 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 he, 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 he do what he instructs us. The Lord agrees with his chip 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 his children who faithfully obey his word. He agrees with them. He strengthens them. He gives them the authority when they are coming back to this. When they are coming back to the word of God. That is what gives them authority. When they are faithful to his word, the Lord approves. That's why he says, for where two or three are, 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 are gathered in my name, there I am among you.
Let's pray over this. Lord, we thank you for your holy scriptures. Lord, we understand that there's a lot of things we just don't understand. And Lord, we come to you and we seek understanding from you because we know that you are good and you are faithful to help us understand your word when we seek you. So Lord, I, I pray that your word will open up our hearts, open up, open up our minds. I pray that your spirit would be over us and would be in us and he would shape us so that we can understand your word, that we can understand what it says, that we can apply it to us, not just understand it in our heads, but to apply it to our hearts so that we look more and more like your son every day. Help, help us in, 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 in this ministry. And it's in your name we, we pray. Amen.